Hey, very good morning to you. I'm Carl Falk. This is the Falcon Around Podcast. We are live on YouTube. And thank you if you are joining us live. It's a beautiful Tuesday morning in Rochester. Hope you're having a good one. We also, of course, this can be consumed in traditional podcast fashion. Look up YouTube, Apple, iTunes, Buzz, Sprout as well. So a lot of places to consume this podcast. I hope you do and pass the word on to your friends. A lot to talk about the NCAA championship game. A little underwhelming, but we'll break that down. We're one week into Major League Baseball. We'll talk about that. Sam Darnold, no longer a member of the Jets. Got to talk about that and how it impacts what may happen at the end of this month with the NFL draft going forward. Maybe the Sabres didn't suck as bad as we thought. We'll hit that. But I want to start in a weird place today. And um, if you live in Rochester and you're familiar with the sports media in Rochester, you, you know of a guy by the name of Matt Trabold. Matt left us last week in very sudden fashion, a brutal situation. And, you know, Matt was a kid, and I say kid because I'm an old guy and Matt was a young guy, was a kid who I got to know very well through my time in, in media. Matt originally was somebody I met because I would referee a lot of basketball games and he would cover a lot of games for Channel 13, get out there with his camera, always with his trademark flannel shirt, always with his trademark shorts, the shoes with no socks. It's it just, it was what Trabes did. And I got to know this guy in, in a way that we'd see each other, talk a little bit, and I always thought, man, what a good dude. And then Mike Catalana, who is with Channel 13, mentioned to me one day that nobody knows college basketball like Matt Trabold. And so I decided to have him on my show when I was on the radio. And Mike was a thousand percent right. Literally, Matt Trabold was a college basketball savant. We would be talking about something, and he could break down the seventh man on North Dakota State and talk about what that guy needs to work on to get better for North Dakota State to make the tournament this year. He, he knew almost every player, every team, every coach. That knowledge of college basketball also translated into high school basketball because he would follow the recruiting. And, you know, the more I had him on my show, the more I got to know him personally. And I, I thought the world of the guy. It, just a wonderful, wonderful human being who was always – in a mood that, that was positive and always complimentary and, and just a, a great, great young man. And it, it broke my heart, frankly, when I heard the news that he passed away last week. And, and I just, you know, we, we never know what's going through other people's minds and we never know what people are dealing with. You know, we may look uh, he looked fine to me. Well, looks don't really tell the story of what's going on. And I just hope, you know, I always try to find a positive in, in the darkest days. And if there's any positive in this, and I frankly, I struggle to see one because the world is uh, not as good a place without Matt Trable. But hopefully the awareness that people may be dealing with stuff that we don't know reach out to your people, love your people, hug your people, just be there for your people. And, you know, to Matt's family and friends and, you know, the fellow media members who all spoke the same way I just did about Matt Trable, my sympathies go out to you as well, because we certainly have lost somebody who impacted so many of us. And again, Personally, this was a kid who I just got to know in a way that I, I enjoyed him. I was blown away by his knowledge. His personality was infectious, always had a big smile. And, and I just, it, it saddens me to know that we are no longer going to have Matt Trable in this town breaking down college basketball, covering high school sports, and, and just being part of 
you know, when the media gets together, whether it's at Bill's camp or there's a bunch of us or whatever the case may be, the conversations always take place about whatever. And it might be what we're watching or it might be what we saw the night before. And Matt was always part of that. And I'll, I'll, I'll forever miss that. So, Matt, rest in peace. And, and, and I hope you're in a much better place than you were. And to his family, again, the, uh, the utmost sympathies from me. Now on to the stuff that we wanted to talk about today. Nobody ever wants to talk about that stuff, but I thought it important to, to deliver that message. Baylor last night showed that they are simply the best college basketball team in this pandemic year. And, and Gonzaga comes in undefeated. Gonzaga comes in off of one of the great games of all time. And before I break down last night's game, I want to go back to Saturday night, UCLA-Gonzaga. UCLA had played in the first four. Mick Cronin, the guy I'm not a big fan of, but had done a great job getting his team to buy in. And, you know, they're down in the first four game big to Michigan State. And they fought back and they, they got back in it. But the Gonzaga game, and in my opinion, it was Jalen Suggs. And I'm going to show you a few clips here. Jalen Suggs making a play that you just don't see in a game very often. And, and we'll show you that. But I also want you to listen to the two different calls of the game. Adam Morrison called that, yes, that Adam Morrison calling the game for the Gonzaga radio network. And, of course, you've got the UCLA network, and, and it's Rochester native Josh Lewin on the call for that one. Just take a listen to this, as, as this was the one of the great college basketball games I've ever seen. Juzang with eight, with seven, gets to the elbow, a floater, line drive, no, gets his own rebound, scores off the glass, 3.3 to go, here's Suggs at midcourt, two, one, a 32-footer, oh, oh my goodness, he banked it in, Gonzaga has won the game, wow, cry in your pillow, unbelievable, Suggs hit a runner, bank shot going home, the Bruins are going home. To the right side of the floor, defended by Kispert now. Drives, leans in, the runner comes up short. Juzang though rebounds and puts it in. We're tied at 90. Three seconds left. Here's Suggs the other way. Pull up three for the win. Yes! Yes! Sandy yes! of the championship game! He knocked no! from 40 at the buzzer! Yes! The Bulldogs! Wow! Play for a national champion! That shot by Jalen Suggs will be the modern Christian Leitner play that we will see forever and ever. And remiss if I didn't point out that a good friend of mine in Rochester native Jeffrey Anderson was the referee who scored the basket in that game. Congrats to Jeff on another Final Four. By my count, I believe that's his fourth Final Four. Uh, three semifinal games and a championship game, I believe. That's a pretty strong resume for a referee, one of our own, doing very well and very proud to call him a good friend as well. But it's interesting watching that clip and, and seeing UCLA in, in, a game, in, a, in a key part of the game get an easy offensive rebound and a putback and it, it was interesting because fast forward from the greatest college game of all time, or one of, to last night's championship game, which ended up being a snooze fest, the early on impression for me was the lack of 
rebounding by Gonzaga and, and Baylor and, and led in part by Mark Vital, who ended up with eight offensive rebounds. They were destroying Gonzaga on the boards. And you look at statistically, Gonzaga shot the ball pretty well. They were over 50%. But if you don't get stops and you turn the ball over and you don't get rebounds, I don't care how well you shoot it, you're not going to win the game. You go from a game where it's one of the greatest games of all time, you win on almost a half-court buzzer beater, it's going to be tough to be at your peak the next time out. And I think that was part of what happened last night as well. I'm not taking anything away from Baylor. Baylor was clearly the best team on the floor last night. But Gonzaga, to me, didn't appear ready to go. Grant Hill on the telecast talked about how when he was at Duke, a few of the big games and a few of the wins, that Leitner play being one of them, the next game out, they were very lethargic and not ready to go. And Coach K had a very hard time getting them ready to go. And it sensed, I sensed the same thing last night, that this team just wasn't there. And again, that's not why they lost. That's why they got blown out, and that was a blowout. They were down big early because they weren't ready to play. And Baylor came out ready to go. And, and Baylor's team is modern basketball at its finest. You've got three point guards, all who can handle it, all who can shoot it. They play in-your-face defense. They want to run. They want to score. It's the modern evolution of the game. And, and a lot of schools, and I'll use Syracuse, are resistant to that style of play. They don't want to get up and down. They don't have five guys who can shoot it. If you rebound the basketball well and you shoot the basketball well, you're going to be a good team. You throw into that in-your-face defense that showed the lack of athleticism to some of Gonzaga's key players. Corey Kisper last night. I didn't think he was an NBA player anyway. Watching that game last night convinced me that kid is a great college player who will not play in the NBA. He's simply not athletic enough. He was bothered by the pressure, couldn't handle it, couldn't get his shot off. At one point, went up for a shot and came down with a travel because he was afraid he was going to get it blocked. You saw Drew Timmy try to get things going inside. He only got seven shots off last night. They couldn't get him the ball because he wasn't strong enough to seal his man and create opportunities to enter the ball into the post. And I thought that was a place, frankly, that Gonzaga could have gotten more. And they should have forced it to Timmy. Timmy, of course, tried to put it on the floor because – if you're not getting yours in the post, you're stepping out and get it. Kept turning the ball over. Kept getting stripped. Not his game. Stepping out of his game. Jalen Suggs, early on especially, couple fouls, comes back in, forcing the action because of frustration with the defense. Baylor's defense changed the way Gonzaga played the game. You add to that that I think they hurt, hit their first six three-point shots. Basically, Gonzaga then went to a zone, and with all their shooters, Baylor would run somebody to that dotted line inside the free throw line, and you got an easy 10-foot jump shot every time. And, and they would put, because everyone on the team could basically make that shot, whoever they sent there, they got an easy shot. It's like a layup. A great piece of coaching by Scott Drew, getting this team ready to go, assembling this group, and, and you know, not often do you get two teams that clearly stand out throughout the year. That's what this was. Gonzaga goes in undefeated. Baylor had their two losses, and, you know, you could explain their two losses away to COVID breaks. You, know, you take three weeks off because of a COVID pause, come back out, you're not ready to play, get beat by Kansas. It, it just it, it's one of those things that, to me, these were the two teams all year long that were – going to be the best teams and when you see them on the floor together they're very different teams the team 
last night that won that game easily was the modern basketball team at its best. Again, pressure man defense. Get up in your face, nothing's easy. Every player on the, on the floor can shoot it. Three point guards, they can all handle it. That's what a team nowadays should look like. Everyone's trying to find that. Three guys who can handle it. You, you, how, what are you going to do, press them? You can't press a team where multiple guys could beat your press. You go zone, you flood the floor with shooters, you can't do that. You play pressure man defense, and you've got so many good ball handlers, you're going to get opportunities. You throw into that the work by a guy like Vital on the offensive boards, who's maybe a little bit physically challenged because he's only 6'5", but he's a workhorse. The pieces to this puzzle for Baylor were fantastic. Davion Mitchell, 15.6 boards or six assists, five boards, great, great, great defense all over the floor. Jared Butler, 22-7. and seven. First player to have 22.7 assists since Carmelo Anthony in 2003. There were a lot of reasons this game ended up the way it did, the biggest of which is this is one of the best college basketball teams we've seen in a long, long time. And I truly mean that. And I mentioned 2003, and of course that's the Syracuse title run with Carmelo and GMAC. It's also a, a very pertinent date to Baylor basketball. And this was alluded to throughout the tournament, but it was never brought up. Scott Drew, when he was introduced in 2003, took a job that frankly he knew he couldn't win right away. The reason he couldn't win right away was because no team or no program had ever gone through what Baylor basketball was about to go through. In 2003, Baylor was coached by Dave Bliss, who had come from SMU to, to take over the Baylor job. In 2003, there were a pair of teammates named Patrick Dennehy and Carlton Dodson. And these two guys somehow – ended up in a dispute. They both owned guns, and theoretically they were friends who owned guns and bought guns out of fear of their own safety. Well, Dennehy ended up murdering Dotson. Dotson was found left, was found dead in the desert, and Dennehy ended up standing trial for his murder, and was not fit to stand trial, so was sent to a, a different place than prison to get help. And this sparked an NCAA investigation into Baylor basketball, which they got hit with some of the most tough penalties that the NCAA has ever levied against a program. And there was a lot of thought they might get the death penalty which means you no longer play college basketball. That's how bad Baylor was in 2003 when Scott Drew got there. He won nine games his first three seasons. Again, limited scholarships and a disastrous program. But from there, he continued to get better. And Baylor has been better over the last few years, and they've been good over the last few years. The last night was the culmination of that rebuild. And, you know, it's funny, the political correctness of television, the story I just told, you didn't hear throughout this entire tournament because we don't talk about bad things from our past. We just kind of pretend they didn't happen. Well, it should have been told. It's part of the story. It's part of Baylor's story that it goes from there, from literally rock bottom in 2003 to where they are now as a national champion and frankly I don't know what's going to happen going forward but Scott Drew the program he's built the style of play that they have they certainly will be back and will be heard from again as will Gonzaga Gonzaga has some of the best recruiting class coming in next year Mark Few has recruited the best class he ever did to come in next year. So while they lose Timmy and Kisper, they'll probably make a lot of money in Europe. I think 
Timmy has a chance to play in the league. I already said Kisper does it. Jalen Suggs likely a top five pick in this year's NBA draft. Gonzaga will be back as well. But it's funny to look at that team last night. They were so outclassed athletically, effort-wise. The the coaching was better. Everything that Baylor did last night was much better than had been done by Gonzaga. Gonzaga, they go with one loss on the year. Nothing to be ashamed of. A, A great, great season for Gonzaga. Just not a historic one. Baylor gets the historic season. So in a year where we survived COVID to play college basketball and many programs shut down, many programs didn't get an opportunity to play as many games as they wanted to, the year ended up in a good situation. And I found it interesting. I I did hear a thing yesterday that I found very, very interesting. Jim Nance was on the Dan Patrick radio show. And I had alluded to this a couple podcasts ago, the bubble situation in Indianapolis, I think sometimes we, what is it, necessities, the grandfather of invention, I believe is the same. Because of the bubble situation due to COVID, we saw a situation where a city can host the entire NCAA tournament. Indianapolis was going to be the first one because it sets up maybe better than any other city for that. Also, because the NCAA is headquartered there. But I think you might have seen the prototype of the NCAA tournament five to seven years from now, where the entire tournament takes place in a city. And the NCAA can sell to a city. We're going to give you three weeks of travel and tourism and fans from all over the country coming to your city. I think this is an opportunity where you're going to see one city hosting, just like Indianapolis did, and I think it's going to happen down the road. They've already allotted Final Fours, so those will be played out the way they're scheduled to be. But I won't be shocked, and Jim Nance alluded to it yesterday, that this may be the new norm to see a bubble situation going forward. So that's the NCAA tournament. Now we sit back and watch the transfer portal. Brahma Sidibe of Syracuse announced he's coming back for a fifth year, so he and Jesse Edwards will split time likely at center. Cole Swidell transferring from Villanova to Syracuse, another guard to give the Orange some depth that they've lost with Kadari Richmond. So we'll keep an eye on that going forward. Going to be an interesting offseason with all of these kids transferring all over. And it's funny. I talked last week about how the coaches don't like this. They've lost control. Nobody champions coaches better than Dick Vitale. He's never said anything bad about a coach in his 30-plus years on the air. He is beside himself over this transfer rule that gives the players freedom and gives the coaches pause and, in large part, may have led to Roy Williams stepping down at North Carolina. He'll be replaced by Hubert Davis as the head coach now going forward. So a lot going on in college basketball. We'll keep you posted as we go through. A lot going on in the NFL. Here we are. We're about three weeks away from the NFL draft. It happens at the end of this month. And it's getting more interesting. We saw that with San Francisco trading up. Well, the Jets at number two, they've been long rumored that they were going to take a quarterback. They still have Sam Darnold. Sam will be entering his fourth year as a member of the NFL. Darnold has underperformed. He has not been good. We all know that. And there are several reasons, in my opinion, why that hasn't happened. One, the Jets organization failed him by putting zero talent around him. The Jets organization failed him by giving him Adam Gase as a head coach. Just simply an unbelievably bad situation for a young quarterback. He had three offensive coordinators in his three years. Sam Darnold failed himself by not improving. Sam Darnold failed himself by not being able to stay healthy. All of these things combined have now led Sam Darnold to be from being the savior of the Jets franchise. And if you go back to that 2018 draft, many people, Sam Darnold's the 
one guy you want. Baker Mayfield's too short. Josh Allen, he's inaccurate. Lamar Jackson's just an athlete. Josh Rosen was the most pro-ready quarterback at that time. But Darnold was the one without the questions. You talk to a lot of people. But as somebody who watches a lot of USC football, what I saw from Sam Darnold at USC was great ability to make plays. And then the inexplicable ability to make a terrible play. I thought Sam made stupid decisions, was inaccurate with the ball at times, and cost his college team opportunities and victories. That hidden in with some of the better throws and better plays you'll ever see a college quarterback make. Well, to me, Sam Darnold was the same guy with the Jets as he was with USC. Great throw, great throw. What the heck was that? Fumble. He just didn't seem to progress. Will he progress in Carolina? Remains to be seen. He's got an excellent coach in Matt Rule there. Great offensive mind. You look at what they did last year with Teddy Bridgewater. He's got Christian McCaffrey. They, they reloaded some talent this offseason at, at wide receiver and at tight end. So we'll see if Sam can find his way. They're going to pick up his fifth-year option reportedly, so he's got two years there. It also means that Carolina is likely going to move on from Teddy Bridgewater, who could end up somewhere as a starter as well. So the quarterback carousel going on and on. Now, one thing I'm hearing, and I don't see this at all, is the Jets got good value for Sam Darnold. The Jets got three draft picks out of Carolina. They got a six-rounder this year. Next year, a second and a fourth. When you talk about future draft picks, the value falls off from what they are. So if you get a next year's first-round pick, it's like a second-round pick this year. If you get a second-round pick next year, it's like a third-round pick this year. It's, it's not great, great value. Nonetheless, Joe Douglas, the Jets' GM, got three picks for Sam Darnold. The Jets, a couple of years ago, gave up three picks to go get Sam Darnold, three seconds. And if you look at that draft, had the Jets stayed at six, Quentin Nelson was the pick at six. He's become the best guard in the league for the Colts. You think about Quentin Nelson being a member of the Jets right now, next to Mekhi Becton, the possibility of adding to that offensive line again this offseason, all of a sudden the Jets may have one of the best offensive lines in football. Now, certainly they don't, and that offensive line remains a work in progress, but it just shows that chasing the quarterback as the Jets continue to do and will do this year in the draft is one of the worst things you can do for your organization. Yes, you need a quarterback to compete. Yes, you've got to have a quarterback if you want to win at the highest level. You know, look at the Final Four this year in the NFL. You had great, great quarterbacks everywhere there was a game played. And Josh Allen entered that discussion this year for the Bills, became an MVP candidate. Now going forward, he's regarded as an MVP candidate. Obviously, Patrick Mahomes, Brady, the greatest of all time. Drew Brees, one of the greatest of all time. So you need the quarterback to, to achieve at the highest level. You chase the quarterback through the draft and – you know, go back to that 2018 draft, five first-rounders. Now you've had one who's on his fourth team, and that's Josh Rosen. You've got another one who's on his second team and hoping to find something in Sam Darnold, third overall pick, and, and just gets three years. Here we're going to have a situation this year where probably five first-round quarterbacks, Trey Lance, Justin Fields, Mac Jones, Zach Wilson, and, of course, Trevor Lawrence at the top of the draft. No way all five become good NFL quarterbacks. It just doesn't happen that way. Even the great 83 draft where you had six quarterbacks taken in the first round, you had guys like Todd Blackledge who didn't really pan out. Tony Eason went a couple good years but wasn't, very, wasn't what you would call a good NFL quarterback. It just doesn't happen that way. There's nothing harder than finding a quarterback in the draft and, and – this year, again, like I said, you're going to have five taken. 
maybe three of them pan out. The Jets have hit the reset button again. And bad organizations, and the Bills were this organization for a long time. Every three years, reset. New coach, new GM, new quarterback, reset. New coach. New, it's, it's like the shampoo bottle. Rinse, lather, repeat. It, it's the same thing. And it, it's nothing is going to change until you stop chasing the quarterback, whether because you found him or because you decided to build a team first and foremost. And if you're going to build a team, the quarterback will eventually pay off regardless of who the quarterback is because you have a very good team around him. See the San Francisco 49ers. We don't know that Jimmy G is a great quarterback or a good quarterback or a bad quarterback. We do know the 49ers team around him is a complete team, and it's a very good team. The Jets now have enough picks, 11 picks in the first three rounds over the next couple of years, that Joe Douglas should be able to build talent and build a team regardless of the quarterback. But then again, with the second pick next week, next month, this month, he's going to take another quarterback. And if the kid hits, the Jets should be very good going forward. If the kid doesn't, Joe Douglas is going to be out, somebody else is going to come in, and the same old situation will start again. I just hope they've learned their lesson that it's not just about the quarterback. It's about building the team. You know, you can't keep drafting guys and trading them like Leonard Williams, like Jamal Adams, and, and moving on from guys. You've got to build a team. And, and let's hope Joe Douglas figures that out for all the Jets fans that are out there. The interesting thing to me is that now the quarterback carousel has kind of slowed down with Carson Wentz going to Indianapolis, filling that hole there. You've got Sam Darnold now in Carolina filling that hole there. Detroit and Rams trading their quarterbacks. Goff being in Detroit, they could still go quarterback, but the Rams certainly won't with Matthew Stafford. It's it's kind of settled itself. And you look now, the Jags, Jets, definitely going to take a quarterback. The 49ers wouldn't have traded up to three if they weren't hell-bent on drafting a quarterback. And then you look at Denver and Washington, two teams I think that are pretty good on one side of the ball defensively and need to find something to go forward as their quarterback. Both have Stop gaps, if you will. Ryan Fitzpatrick, obviously, the cockroach being in Washington, he'll give him all he's got, but he is what he is. Drew Locke hasn't secured that job yet, so I would expect Denver, to, if they get a chance, to maybe bring somebody in to try to compete with him. But there are a lot of interesting teams now with guys like Jimmy Garoppolo likely being available, Teddy Bridgewater being available. You look at Atlanta, Matt Ryan, entering the last year of his deal, new regime down there. Are they going to go quarterback at four? Do they ride it out with Matt Ryan and, and maybe go next year? And one of the things I hear about next year is there aren't, it's not going to be a good quarterback class. Every year, it's not going to be a good quarterback class. But all of a sudden, you're going to find guys who get drafted. Zach Wilson, the second round pick or the second overall pick likely this year, wasn't on anybody's radar a year ago. So I don't believe this. there's not going to be a good quarterback class next year. There's always a good quarterback class because it just matters how desperate the team is that's drafting. So Atlanta's going to be interesting. Detroit, are they good with Jared Goff? Do they, do they find him to be a player that they're going to move forward with, or is he a stopgap? And they're at seven. They might have a chance to draft somebody at seven to play quarterback. The Patriots need a quarterback. they got to figure something out. I know they resigned Cam, Cam Newton. Cam, to me, looks done. That shoulder is not right. His inability to throw the football is going to ultimately take away all of his other abilities. He's still a very good leader, very good teammate, and that's why New England brought him back. can still run with it. But eventually, you got to be able to throw it, and I don't think Cam can. The Chicago Bears, who always seem to be in this discussion, they have Andy Dalton slated to be their starting quarterback. They need to go find a quarterback, and Teddy Bridgewater may be the answer there as well. And I'll be intrigued if 
the Panthers are able to trade Bridgewater for something similar to what they gave up for Darnold. And then, of course, there, there's the Saints. They're at the end of the draft at 28. Mickey Loomis has done a great job building that team. Sean Payton, great coach. But you look at the quarterback situation with Taysom Hill, who plays athlete, playing quarterback, and, and then James Winston, who they don't seem to have the full confidence in to have him be the main guy. I, I wonder where they go in this draft. So a lot of quarterback discussion. Again, <laughs> you look at these teams and you look at how they built the team. And Again, you look at a team like Kansas City. Yes, Patrick Mahomes gets every bit of accolades that he deserves, but there's also Travis Kelsey. There's also the Cheetah, Tyreek Hill. They've built around the quarterback. The offensive line had injuries in the Super Bowl, and you saw what it did to Patrick Mahomes. This is going to be interesting this year to see if team building still becomes a thing or if teams are just chasing the quarterback. It's like you're in Vegas when you start losing money and you start chasing the money you lost. That's chasing the quarterback, and it's cost a good number of NFL executives their jobs. Speaking of costing jobs, let's talk about the Buffalo Sabres, and I'm not going to crap on the Sabres for a change because maybe they're not as bad as we thought. Now, this was the worst team in the league by a huge stretch. They had lost 18 games in a row or hadn't won 18 games in a row. It depends on how you want to say it. This team, coached by Ralph Kruger, was an absolute disaster. When they fired Ralph, they were 6-18-4. They had 16 points in 28 games. A disastrous team. No bright spots whatsoever. A couple years ago, they took a can't-miss defenseman, Rasmus Dahlin, with the number one overall pick. Under Ralph Kruger, this kid regressed so bad, he looked like he was playing his way out of the league. That's how bad he looked. Well, now Don Granado's in there. And in the last four games, the Sabres are 2-0-2. And more importantly, they're competing. Rasmus Dahlin, who was minus 34 on the season, was minus 2 in his last five games. All of a sudden, Dahlin looks like the player he looked like a couple years ago. Different player. The harm done by this franchise by the decision to hire Ralph Kruger and put his unconventional methods behind the bench, it's going to cost this organization another few years of development. It is just another sign that Terry and Kim Pagula, the owners, have absolutely no clue how to run a franchise. They were very fortunate when they hired Sean McDermott. Incredibly fortunate that they found the right guy. And Sean McDermott then found Brandon Bean. And the two of them working together built the Bills into a team that's poised to go on a championship run this year. I don't know that they'll get to the championship game again, but they're in the mix, and many people will pick them to not only win the AFC East, but to get to the AFC Championship game yet again. And I'm sure some will pick them to win the Super Bowl this year. That shows how important the decision is when you hire a coach. The Pagulas have gone through now eight coaches in their 12 years as owners of the Sabres. It's just been awful. Ever since Kim ran off Pat LaFontaine in the early days of their ownership, this organization has been in a downward spiral and it won't get better until they figure out how to handle things now maybe Don Granado and Kevin Adams will be the guys but again just look to last year when the Pagulas decided that they're going to hire Kevin Adams but they're going to streamline hockey operations they're going to make it more efficient remember they, they got rid of a bunch of people in hockey operations they can pare down their scouting department. They're going to do it virtually. They're going to show the world a new way to do things. 
It's like hiring a soccer coach to coach your hockey team. This isn't an Apple TV show. It's real-life professional sports. And Kevin Adams now is looking to build back up the hockey operations department. It's really, really disheartening to me because there are so many Sabre fans that are so loyal and, and want so badly for this team and this organization to finally get over the hump. I don't know that they ever will, frankly, because the Pagulas don't know how to let this organization be successful. The decisions they continue to make have hurt this organization to the point where I don't know if it's repairable. I really don't. I hope they continue to play the way they're playing, and Don Granado could be the coach going forward that we all look at and go, man, what a great decision to hire him. Unfortunately, the decision to hire him wasn't really a decision. It was more of a forced action because the decision to hire Ralph Kruger was just so bad. This is a terrible, terrible organization. And you've heard from players who've left now speaking about the organization, how bad it was, just how bad things were. Credit to Don Granado for getting these guys to buy in and to play and to get six points in their last four games. It's really impressive that he has, in a very short period of time, changed the way they play the game, first off and foremost. He got rid of Kruger's style, and they're back to playing hockey in a way that fits the talent they have on the ice. He's got guys buying in and giving effort. And, you know, one, one question may have been answered this year, the goalie question, because if you look at the Sabres goalies, Linus Allmark, has been very good. His record in goal seven five and three for a team that's eight twenty three and six. All other goalies other than Linus Olmark are one eighteen and three. That's that's pretty apparent that one guy's really good and the other guys aren't good at all. Now he hasn't been able to stay healthy, and that's a huge part of the equation in being a successful NHL goalie. But I think going forward, at least you found that you have a guy that, when healthy, can get between the pipes and, and actually stop the puck once in a while, which that's going to give the rest of the team a little bit more confidence as well. So, the Sabre fans, I'm happy you're getting to watch some good hockey right now because I know you still continue to watch night in, night out, and what was going on was just unacceptable. But now it's getting better. Let's hope somehow, some way, the future gets much brighter for this organization. We are now about five days into the Major League Baseball season, so I wanted to give you some first impressions of the baseball season. It's been an interesting start to the season. You've got some teams that are doing some things that I don't think many people would have thought coming both good and bad. You've got some decisions made by people who don't have anything to do with baseball that impact the game, and by that I mean the Texas government. Last night, the Rangers hosted the Blue Jays. They lost. Steven Matz, former Mets, met, pitched very well for the Jays, who are now 4-1. and one. And you look at 38,000 people in the ballpark last night. They weren't cutouts. They weren't socially distanced. They were 38,000 live baseball fans in a stadium. And look, this is one of those things that is going to be debated forever until we're beyond this COVID thing. Is it right? Is it wrong? Is it smart? Is it stupid? I don't know what it is. And I don't know how it's going to end up. But I sure know it looked great to see a, a full house in a stadium You know, think of that UCLA-Gonzaga game the other night. If that's in front of 60,000 fans like a traditional Final Four, can you imagine what that would have sounded like and been like? It was cool to see 38,000 people in attendance last night. Now, is it safe? I don't know. Is it smart? 
I don't know. But I thought it was really cool to see. So there was that. The Phillies are now 4-0. Yeah, they, they beat the Mets last night because the Mets brought in two relievers this offseason who in their first outing decided to cost Jake DeGrom another win. DeGrom, by the way, six innings, no no runs. Well, why would you allow a run? You're Jake DeGrom. It was the 40, 46% of the time in his career starts, Jake DeGrom has allowed zero or one run. Think about that. 46% of the time. It's almost half the time he gives up one or less runs. And yet, here's a guy who has 70 career wins. 31 times the bullpen has cost him wins. 31 times. It happened last night again. Just amazing. But the Phillies bullpen, which last year was the worst bullpen in baseball, they went out and signed all new guys. They have been lights out. They haven't allowed a run yet this year. And I think they're up to like 17 scoreless innings. Really impressive what they're doing. And the NL East is going to be a very good division. The Phillies were kind of one of those teams you look at their talent and you think, oh, they've got Nola and Wheeler at the front of the rotation and obviously very good bats throughout the lineup. Are they going to be able to find a bullpen? Well, early returns show that they are. Dodgers are doing what the Dodgers do. They're 4-1. and one. They're just a, an unbelievable team. They, barring significant injuries, should be there at the end. The Astros are back to cheating. I mean, playing good baseball. They're off to a 4-1 and one start. How about the Angels at 4-1? and one? Is this the year we finally get to see Mike Trout play in the postseason? Now, I know everyone's freaking out about what Shohei Otani did the other night batting second as a pitcher, throwing 102, hitting a 450-foot home run. Look, Otani is is great, and, and he's a great talent. Let him do it for a year. Let him stay healthy for a year. But let's not forget, the best player in baseball is Mike Trout. Let's not get so enamored with Shohei Otani's talents that we forget who the best player in baseball is. Otani's not even close to the best player on his own team. And, you know, the Yankees get a win last night. Here's where it's it's funny to me how reactionary fans and media can be. The Yankees had a tough weekend series playing the Jays, lose two out of three. And, again, Jays are very good. They're going to be a playoff team, in my opinion. They're going to be a team that's going to be there at the end of the, the season. So for the Yankees to lose two out of three to them, not ideal, but no big deal. It's it's not a not a crime to lose two out of three to the Jays. You're playing Baltimore tonight, and the Orioles had come in having won all three games they played against the Red Sox. Well, last night, Jordan Montgomery pitched six shutout innings for the Yankees. Give them a little credit. But the reaction to Giancarlo Stanton, who finally got his first hit last night, 475-foot grand slam, and – Here's a guy who hasn't stayed healthy as a Yankee. He, when healthy, has produced slightly. I find Aaron Judge and Giancarlo Stanton to be basically the same guy, and they, they've got the same flaws. They can't stay healthy. They strike out too much. And when, when healthy and when right are two of the more exciting players in baseball. And Yankee fans love Judge because he came up as a Yankee, and they hate Stanton because they thought it was a terrible trade. And it's funny that last night, both hit home runs. One hit a grand slam that went 475 feet. The other hit a solo shot that went 315 feet, a Yankee Stadium home run. And yet, the criticism always goes to Giancarlo Stanton, not to Aaron Judge. I don't know how it's going to play out this year with the two of them, but I find that very interesting. Uh, The MVP... in every sport, you, you now you know weekend. Who's who's the leader in the MVP race? So we might as well be absurd and do that in baseball after four games. It's only 158 more to go. White Sox, your main Mercedes, who had zero career major league hits before this year, starts the season eight for eight. Uh, breaking news. That's pretty good. He's now 12 of 18 after a three for four night last night. 
So apparently the White Sox have a Mercedes, and we might already have two big injuries. And speaking of the White Sox, they're really good shortstop. Tim Anderson, he's out, hamstring issue. Last night, Fernando Tatis Jr., great young Padre shortstop, had a shoulder problem. He came out, no word yet on how long these guys are going to be missing. But I do think that as this season goes on, injuries and handling of pitchers is going to be a huge part of the equation because of last year being such a unique year. How do you handle it this year? And there's going to be COVID shutdowns and things like that. And it's going to be a part of the story similar to what it was last year. A lot of guys ended up with Tommy John surgery last year. I think we're going to see that again going forward. So keep an eye on the injuries. couple uh, strange starts to the year. The A's, the team thought to contend in the AL West, they're 0-5 now after last night's loss. The Nationals haven't played a game yet because of their COVID outbreak. They get going tonight against the Braves. The Braves haven't won a game yet because they were swept over the weekend by the Phillies. The Braves, in my opinion, the best team in the National League, but that's not named the Dodgers. We'll see how that transpires. But, again, way too early to panic, way too early to to feel good about anything. But just you always want to get off to a good start. You don't want to start 0-5 like the A's. It's a long season. I'm sure there's plenty of time to get back. Fortunately for fans of teams like the Pirates and the Mets, they're not mathematically eliminated yet. They will have a chance to rebound. Again, you just don't want to get off to a bad start. And a couple times we've already seen that bad start. So that's the podcast for this week. Hope you enjoyed it. If you caught it live and you did, let somebody know that they can catch it traditionally and go to YouTube, go to Buzzsprout, go to Apple and and listen to it. We'd appreciate that. Thanks for listening, everybody. Have a good week. I'm Carl Falk. This is the Falcon Around Podcast.